Dr. Stavrula Varela is lecturer in English language and linguistics at King's College London in the UK. Her areas of research include the relationships between linguistics and literature, nomenclature in medical discourse, and language contact, including linguistic borrowing and phonological and morphological nativization, all of which uh, we'll certainly learn about today. She has published a number of works, including Lexicon and Word Formation, Language Contact and the Lexicon in the History of Cypriot Greek, uh, and edited Languages and Cultures in Contact and Contrast, Historical and Contemporary Perspectives, and Explorations in World Literature from Ancient to Contemporary. Today, she's here to explore the origins of the modern Cypriot Greek dialect from both an historical and linguistic lens. So, um, Stavrula, if I may, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. First off, I'm going to tell you, uh, I'm very excited for this conversation to tell you, tell you the truth, because um, I've always been very fascinated by language mm-hmm. and, and especially just Greek Cypriot. I've always found it so intriguing. Uh, every, every time I speak with my parents, you know, I'll hear a word and I'm always like, oh, that's an interesting word. I wonder where that's from. And, and I'm sure you're familiar with that one big book. I, I want to say the last name is Rois. Um, yeah. yeah, and I, I, I have that and I always pop it open <laughs> just to see what the etymology of a word is, mm. um, even though I know how difficult etymologies are. Uh, they're impossible, but uh, yeah, that, that's a good book. Is that the one that's like trilingual? Has yes, yes. It as well? Yeah, it's brilliant. It's a big fat thing. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. that's right. So uh, I think for a lot of Cypriots who speak the Greek dialect, this is, is a very interesting topic. And I'd like to kind of start off by just giving a broad overview on the historical origins of the dialect, which I believe you have pointed out is divided into three periods, ancient, medieval, and contemporary with the latter two falling into the modern category. Now, I know it's a, a little bit of a broad, open question, but is it possible you can provide a, a brief overview of the, of the history of the Cypriot Greek dialect? Mm-hmm. So let me start by saying something very generic about language. So language, language is anywhere. Go through a cycle of convergence and divergence. So At one point, there is a kind of uniform language spoken across an area. And then that language would inevitably split into dialects. And then those dialects would come together again and then into one more uniform language and then start splitting again. So, And that's what happened with Greek. So we've got, say, the Greek of Homer. And then we've got ancient Greek the classical period and the different dialects, that's where we see uh, the first kind of division into, some say it's three broad categories, some identify more. So we've got Ionic, Doric, and Aeolic. And then there is Arcado-Cypriot, which is like the first, the ancient dialect spoken on Cyprus. And then kind of all these dialects disappear with, uh, Alexander the Great. So then we've got the Koine Greek, Hellenistic Greek, as it's called. So that would be from about 330 BC to 700. And then after that, language kind of splits again. So Cyprus loses contact with Byzantium. There are 
invasions and all sorts of things and it's sort of cut off and it's sort of free to follow its own path. And then we've got Cypriot pretty much as we speak it today. So that's from the medieval period onwards. Well, let's start with with Koine, or as we would say in modern Greek, Guinea. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we can confidently say, if I'm not mistaken, that there isn't carryover from the Arcado Cypriot, but we can confidently start to trace remnants of the Cypriot dialect today to the Ptolemaic era, where we have the Koine Greek. And although generally the modern Cypriot dialect is traced to the medieval period, there seems to be linguistic remnants from the from the Guinea, from the Koine. Can you speak to some of those carryovers that make Cypriot unique that's um, rooted in the Koine? For example, you know, the double consonants and some modern words that listeners might be familiar with are like the words for sand, amos, or mm-hmm. never, bote. You know, so where do we get those words from and what other carryovers can we have from the Ptolemaic era? So we get these words from ancient Greek, some from the Ptolemaic era, so that they will be in Hellenistic Guinea, sort of inherited a lot of the ancient vocabulary, obviously. So, uh, so what you said is absolutely correct. Much of that inheritance is in terms of vocabulary. So we have words like after from after, gamo from gamia. When we say gani, that's enough. That's mm-hmm. from uh, ikanon esti. Other words like when we say adoxemu, uh, that's from doki mi. Ospolade is not a word I use, but I have heard people saying it, which which comes from ancient ispolaedi. So it's kind of it became a sort of saying or a greeting saying hopefully or something like that so we've got lots of words and then we've got grammatical elements like you mentioned the double consonants like amos papus galitera so what's interesting here is that ancient greek had this double consonant as evidence is some of the modern greek spelling and uh, and Cypriot not only preserved that, but it kind of extended the rule to other words that wouldn't normally be pronounced with a double consonant. So it's existing ancient words and lots of other words that kind of didn't follow the standard, but developed their own rule. So pretty much everything is kind of double. So mm-hmm. any consonant between two vowels would be kind of heavy. And then some endings in nouns, like the final N, anthroboni, meran. And then the famous augment. So, fi, ber, padisa, katalava, rotisa, and so on. So, again, that's something that existed in, in the Kini and then was maintained in Cypriot grid. And then it was extended sub- subsequently to other verbs that wouldn't normally require it. Now, with, with the majority of, of our features, however, we confidently trace them more to the to the medieval era. And we're talking about from, I suppose, the 12th century or the close of the 12th century till, I guess, the close of the 16th century. This is where we find most of the changes that we can point to and say, okay, now this is, this is uniquely Cypriot. And, and you call this... Um, uh, one of the words that I had to kind of wrap my my head around was uh, you're calling this a nativization process, and you talk about morphological and phonological adaptation. Can you explain what this nativization process is and how 
perhaps in the medieval period, we start to see that with the with the influence of the French languages, the Italian languages, so on and so forth. So nativization is, you can call it naturalization if you prefer that word, or uh, adaptation. Or So basically is that's when a language absorbs elements from other languages. So in our case, it would be, uh, like you said, French and Italian and so on, and kind of makes them their its own. So you take a word, and normally the root of that word would would be the element that is being borrowed and then you're going to stick an ending that would kind of conform to the rules of the borrowing language Mm -hmm. so you take avocat in french and you make it avocados and we find that word in in medieval cypriot text so and that's the idea so what what goes on how does a language kind of claim words and especially words uh and and makes them appear as if they are they could be Greek or Cypriot Greek. So the first thing that happens is is the sound is going to be adapted to something that's pronounceable by the native speakers. So it's a bit like learning a foreign language, and you kind of your pronunciation isn't perfect because you are there are sounds you possibly can't even make at all or can't hear very well. Therefore, you can't reproduce. And uh, so it's it's kind of an extension of that phenomenon. So you, so the in borrowing a language would adjust the sounds, the phonemes of these words into its own uh, phonological structures, mm-hmm. and then it's morphology, and that's where it's most noticeable because that's when you're familiar with the declensions of Greek. And then once you see those, but the root of the word isn't Greek, it's probably French or Italian and so on, then you know that some process of nativization have taken place. And I found that quite interesting. That's why I did my PhD on this, because it's sort of from a contemporary linguistic perspective, we're interested in levels of bilingualism. So the the underlying question is always, to what extent were these people fluent in two different languages to be able to not only pick up the foreign word, but also accept it and make it their own? Does that make sense? I'm not sure I explain it very well. Oh, it seems to make sense to me. I mean, um, if I think of a word um, that comes to mind uh, where this kind of plays out, if we take the Italian word crepare and mm. We turn that into into the Greek, uh, or at least in Cyprus, not creparo, you know, and that seems to be one of those, if I'm not mistaken, morphological adaptations that you're that you're describing. If that makes any sense, if I'm correct in my reading of it, completely. So, so that's that's what's about really. It helps us as historical linguists. It's interesting to see what sort of what was considered a sort of norm. Sometimes you kind of. Sometimes you see these patterns that apply to certain languages. So exactly your example is perfect. So all these Italian verbs in are readily became Cypriot verbs in aro. So mm-hmm. that wasn't much of a change. French is a little more complicated. So we've got these very early loans in Iazos, things like Adeniazos for Chazo and Adeniazo and so on, which... I don't know where Yaza came from, but 
the French or the Provençal verb would end in R in the infinitive and then maybe yeah in and second plural or I don't know. So one form, yeah. one of these forms get, gets picked up, which is normally what speakers hear. And then inevitably they, they'll start using it as if it were a Greek word with Greek endings and so on. Right. Um, what are some of the characteristics of the medieval dialect in Cyprus in this period? I mean, what are some of the, the phonological sounds that we start that start emerging uh, in the medieval period? So we've got the double consonants. We see evidence of that. And then we've got what's called that C sound, Cetakism. It's actually, it became a term in linguistics, which is it's really that too that you find in Cypriot, or maybe two even. So you sort of the word in the mainland would be Geradion, and in in Cypriot it became Geratsin. And you see mm-hmm. you see in 13th century text with that two sound, and then it it kind of extended into two. Uh, and then we've got every, everything that goes on in Cypriot, you can trace it in the early medieval text. So texts. So you've got syllables being dropped, especially if they are kind of similar and sounding redundant. So a synevivastigan becomes a synevastigan, something like that. Mm-hmm. And then vowel harmony. So that's when you try and make vowels in a word sounding the same. So instead of yeneka, you say yeneka. Mm-hmm. And then germination, we mentioned all that pronunciation of double consonants. And then Elision not just of syllables, but of any consonant between two vowels. So laos rather than laos. And then fusion of sounds. So sometimes kind of a string of sounds merges into something else. So instead of brotho, you find a word vrutho, which is what it meant. Little words like peribu and inda from dinda and men from me then. You find all that in uh, medieval Cypriot. Yeah, I, I I find that part really fra- fascinating because I mean, again, uh, if if we have uh, Greek listeners right now um, who are Cypriot, we think of the word inda brama, right, or, or inda, right, and just to trace, and I think you you do this in in your in your book, you you trace how that origin um, from inda starts, uh, and I, I believe it's di ineta. Um, uh, which mm-hmm. means what, and then that turns into dinda, and then we get words or phrases like esisinda lalite, right? And it becomes, um, you know, very unique, uniquely Cypriot. Or the um, another example that that I, I picked out in your book is uh, where we get the word enje from. Uh, it starts from the negative particle uk, you know, right. where we have ukehi, and then uk oke eke enje, and that's very fascinating to read that. There's also other examples. Um, uh, you mentioned, um, sorry, is it cicatism? It's cicatism, yeah. Cicatism. Um, a word that, that I'm looking in front of me right now is um, the word sacra. Uh, I think that would be a great example of that from the French chancre. Yeah, that's that's right. So you find that su sound that shouldn't be there, but it is. And, right. And that's extended. It, it sort of overlaps to an extent with other phenomena which 
kind of that fall under the umbrella of palatalization. So that's that's very super common in Cypriot, and uh, everybody speaking Cypriot would identify that. So instead mm-hmm. of who, we have j, and instead of who, you have shu. So tishin instead of tihin, tihin, geros mm-hmm. instead of geros, and harchin instead of harkin. So that would be a, a kappa or a he, either between two vowels or following a consonant, but before a vowel again. Now, I might, I might put you on the spot here, Stavrula. Now, why, why is the dialect not able, let's, let's take the word um, Zalatina, for example, all right? With uh, anyone who's ever had Zalatina, in my opinion, it's awful. <laughs> okay, I don't like it. Um, but if you know what it what it is, um, it, it, it forced me to eat it when I was about five, and I run in my So yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, well, Zalatina, as as far as we know, and 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 we talked about this earlier. Um, word etymologies are very difficult, but um, uh, we I, I think we can confidently say that comes from the French gelatine. Now. In the modern Greek or the modern Cypriot dialect, the je sound exists. We can say je, but when this word is adopted, it, it takes on the, the letter Z. So we have Zalatina instead of Jalatina, for example. Why, and this is where I said I'm putting you on the spot, why doesn't why don't we have a direct adaptation of some of these sounds that we can presumably pronounce in our modern Cypriot dialect? Is this because, and I'm taking a guess here, that sound didn't exist at the time and it was an attempt to replicate it? No, it did exist. It's a, it's a really good question and sort of hard to answer. It did exist, but if you notice, we say je only before e or e. Mm-hmm. So what happens with this particular example is that another rule of adaptation got in there first which sort of prohibited the other rules so it had to go back to z so in french is sort of presumably the etymology is correct i'm not even sure i'm never sure about etymologies but uh, right right yeah it is a problem isn't it yeah uh so if the french is gelatine cypriot wouldn't like the e and the a and it's more likely to have made it with the two r both syllables the same. So it would have been Jaladina, if anything. But because you can't have J before the R, you kind of simplify it back to Z. So it's sort of, it's an irregular thing that became a necessity because another rule applied first. Does Mm -hmm. that make sense? (laughs) Yes, it does. It, It does make sense. Would you say it's a little bit of guesswork when we're dealing with these etymologies? Um, I find it fascinating, actually, and I enjoy it when I can find the answer, but sometimes it's quite tricky. Yeah, it is. Uh, it really is, because um, even words that made our that made their way into Greek from the Latin, uh, it seems that they make their way indirectly most of the time. Exactly. Um, you know, you look at words, and again, I'm, I'm, I've chosen words, uh, everyone. <laughs> I've chosen words that are very common in Cypriot. We take the word vraka, right? <laughs> that presumably comes from the Latin for braca, which means breaches, but that never directly came from the Latin into, into our dialect, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. So, And that's why etymologists are different. What we're good at is saying what language the original word 
belongs to. That's mm-hmm. fairly easy. Uh, unless, of course, they're cognates. So some words are similar in, in I don't know, they sound the same in Provençal and in Portuguese, and we can guess, well, Cy- Cyprus had more contact with Provençal rather than Portuguese, so it must be Provençal. So some of it, some of it, the answer is in historical detail. But the bigger issue is, is exactly what you said, whether we're dealing with direct borrowings or indirect ones. So, and a lot of early loans that have their roots either in Latin or some dialect of Italian. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't know whether Cypriot picked it directly from Latin or Italian or whether it came via Greek, just because there is an evidence in a Greek text at a time. It didn't mean that the word didn't exist. So it's, yeah, you have to kind of weigh all these factors. So the time the word appears, the time you think the word was actually in use, not necessarily when it appears in a written form. And then, uh, yeah, and then you have to consider indirect loans or secondary loans. So interestingly, we borrowed words from Turkish that are actually Greek words, but we definitely borrow them from, from Turkish because they sound more like Turkish. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's that going on. So it's, yeah, it's about direction and timing, and that's when things get a bit complicated. Yeah, another word that um that I, I that again that uh, Cypriots could relate to is the word suvla, that's um, right. which 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 in Latin I think is the original where we think we can trace the word to is subula that's in right. Latin, which spit maybe some spit. Yeah, I was thinking that. Other words we can be more confident about like bucono. Well, mm. We can get that from buca uh, or boca rather, right? So. That's um, right. We, which has to do with the mouth. So it's very, very uh, fascinating, these etymologies. Now, my one of my favorite quotes, I want to just kind of shift gears here to talk about literature a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and we know that um, a lot of the, a lot of our understanding about the medieval dialect comes from the medieval literature that has survived. And one of my favorite quotes was um, one from Leon Dios Majeras, who famously said, and I quote, we speak Greek and French that people don't even know what our language is anymore, end quote. Do we get a sense as to how, how the language penetrated Greek at that time and to, how, to what degree it, it, it penetrated into the lower classes? Uh, we can assume that anybody in the nobility would have adopted, and we know there are a number of uh, noble families, Greek families residing in Cyprus uh, in the medieval period. But do we have a sense, and we can see from the literature, the assizes, the chronicles of Leon Dios Majeras and George Bustron, how common was this in the, the lower classes? That's a really good question. So we've got a lot of evidence suggesting that Cyprus at the time was a pretty multicultural, multilingual environment. It's interesting in the Frankish period because at the peak of that period, we've got, we're talking about a truly bilingual community. And towards the end, so French, even the nobility started abandoning French, turning initially to Italian because that was the language of an emerging, very wealthy merchant class who were primarily from Italy. And then gradually they switched to Greek. Mm-hmm. And like you said very rightly, this wonderful story of kind of bilingualism, but then gradually 
sort of succumbing to the local language is is a fascinating one, but to what extent does it apply to lower classes? And that's that's difficult because uh, any so any written sources we have would have been written by educated, well-off people who were, I don't know, maybe like Maheras was like in the French court and Strong the same. Uh, so the, it's a. I think the assumption is that local Greek speakers once. Once the French established a sort of Western-style feudal monarchy, the Greek speakers found themselves at the lowest rate. So they would be serfs, they would be farmers, and they would be laborers. And they would speak only Greek. I doubt amongst those would be, you'd find any bilingual speakers. What you would find is people who have some sense of French words. And that's why we've got these borings because you have to talk to your boss eventually and you're going to have right. to deal with what you've got, your own language and a bit of what you hear in your environment. So you've got a sort of, I don't know, I imagine a sort of pigeon-like form of language that would would have elements of a language you don't officially speak or you've never, you've never been taught, but you hear in the environment. Yeah, so it eventually, it, it sort of, percolates I, I suppose that we can use that word um mm-hmm. over time and yeah you know you actually just the, you just talking right now um i was reminded of another story of um queen charlotte in cyprus and i get i might be mistaken you might have to correct me on this but there is a story of queen charlotte needing to have her marriage contract uh translated from the french or possibly from the italian into Greek because she had um, wasn't as proficient in those other languages. So we can see from th- that those types of sources that definitely in the higher nobilities uh, there is a a mix happening there, and uh, it's unfortunate that we're not able to be as confident for the lower classes. Mm. I think we can say quite a lot about the nobility and how yeah the the first generations were monolingual French and then the following generations would be bilingual and then the generations following them would be monolingual Greek and that's I think that happens I don't know it's just it's just such a typical story isn't it you see even if you take families you've got you've got grandparents who only speak the one language if you take your average migrant family you've got grandparents with one language and then kids with who speak both and grandchildren who would and if they're lucky I've got lots of students with Greek names and they can't speak a word of Greek because they say oh but only my grandparents speak Greek so it's and it's it's kind of interesting in a way I think then that's so you can you can imagine that over a period of time so you've got settlers who bring their languages and use them and then eventually you kind of become part of the landscape and you speak what you hear and that's that's it. So yeah, the, uh, towards the end of the Frankish period, the language will be Greek. There's, um, I've never been able to get my hands on this, but there is a really um, important primary source from this period called the Cypriot Poems of Love. Yeah, again, I've never been able to get a hold of this. It's a pretty difficult um, resource to get. Do you know anything about that? Could you tell us anything about um, the Cypriot poems of love and why they're so important when when we consider the Italian influence? Yeah, that's right. So the, the, they're interesting in that this they don't look Greek. They're entirely written in Greek. 
but they sort of inspired by Petrarch and in style and content and form they look like they look like the Italian poems of the time of uh, of the Italian Renaissance. So it's something like 150 something poems. Uh, about 23 are direct translations from Italian, and the others we think are original. They, they talk about love and they're sort of romantic poetry, really. Do they? So these these um, poems of love they don't trace to the to the Venetian period, even though they're they're Italian. They're still well within the Frankish period. Do we have any literature from the Venetian period later? I mean, how are we able to gauge that impact? of another dialect onto onto Cypriot Greek. So the the poems of love actually I would actually place in the Venetian period, the sort of 16th century. Okay. And then before that, 15th century, we've got translations of a text that was kind of famous in Italy mainly, but other parts of Greece as well and other parts of Europe. And in Italian it's called Fiore di Virtù which in Greek, in parts of Greece, was translated as Anthos Haridon. In the Cypriot text comes as... That's fascinating because the title of it is... It uses both the Italian and the Greek, or the Cypriot rather, translation. So it's called Fior di Virtu du Destin Athos de Saradis, which... Yeah, so it's kind of... It's a text. It belongs to the moralizing tradition and it's kind of... It's a lesson about virtues, really. So they kind of... They, they take different virtues and they liken them to animals and they... So it's a story about animals and virtues. I don't know. It's, I've only read a little bit of it. Mm-hmm. But uh, I find that fascinating because why does the title come in two languages? So are we, is it because it was talking to a bilingual population? Or at the very least, we can assume that the society was still linguistically mixed. So there have been the Italian speakers and the Greek speakers and so on. So that would be 15th and 16th century. And then the Rimes Arabis, or the Poems of Love. Again, that's that's clearly Italian. So just it's all about technique of them. So you find technical metrical patterns you wouldn't find in Greek. You find consistent use of rhyme. Now, rhyme didn't exist in Greek poetry at the time, so we find it in these poems. You find things like, so it looks like a Western European sonnet, an Italian sonnet. In 11 syllables, each line would be 11 syllables. Again, Greek poetry would be either 8 syllables or 15. So you've got the Italian influence there is, is very clear. And again, the assumption is, I don't know, we don't know obviously who wrote them, but the assumption is that that would be a very educated bilingual composer, poet. Because what we know historically, at least about the Venetian period, is that uh, it wasn't a happy one for Cyprus, because by that time, the Venetian Empire was sort of collapsing, and Cyprus was a story of mismanagement and corruption and... Uh, I don't know, add to it droughts and floods and locusts and bad things happening during the Venetian period. So eventually the Europeans left, went back home, to, so to say, or to other parts of Europe. And so by the end of the Venetian period, something like 90% of the population would be monolingual Greek speakers. So, and yet we find these poems which seem to be quite popular. So it's again another 
another thing that's a bit hard to explain. Mm-hmm. Do you know of um, of any words that emerge from these uh, Cypriot poems of love that we can that still exist in our dialect today? So I know that um, when we look back to the assizes or um, or Mahiras or Bustron's work, we can see words that continue to exist and some that have petered out that that are no longer a part of our dialect. Mm-hmm. Um, are there words that we can still say uh, come from this period that we can confidently say come from this period? Uh, there's a lot of words in our dialect, of course, that have um, Italian origins. A lot of people will know the word sharpa, for example, to, for scarf, or if I sorry, if I think glappa, that comes from the Italian grappa, or or even dacha comes from staccio. You know, is are, it, can this be confidently traced to um, to this source, or is that, or is it more of a period that we trace some of these words? Yeah, it can be traced to the period. Some of them will be in the poems inevitably, but again, we don't know whether Cypriots learn their words from the poems. Unlikely, given yeah. that education wasn't accessible. Proper. Yeah, accessible. That's a good yeah. Word. Yeah, so I think it's a it's a quite so the poems are a good indication of the sort of language spoken at the time. The and from the poems we can infer about the language rather than the other way around. To trace words in a particular text it's it's probably not that helpful. What we know is what words were in use in that time. So now, with the with the Ottoman conquest, uh, there seems to be something that that hasn't happened to this degree. We have a uh, a, a significant demographic shift. So with that democratic sh- demographic shift in mind, how was Greek able to survive? Uh, obviously, it adapted and adopted a number of Turkish words, but as a whole, the language still um, survived. Uh, is there anything in particular that allowed it to thrive in these uh, few centuries? Uh, you might say with a degree of confidence that if it wasn't for the Orthodox Church, that Ireland would probably be Turkish-speaking. I don't know. I'm exaggerating slightly. But uh, so what kept the language going is definitely the Greek Orthodox Church. And it's quite well known in history that the Ottomans sort of granted certain privileges to hire people in within the church. Uh, so the kind of people were free to carry on with their faith. And everything was about faith in those days. So anyway, so all your knowledge that is in your day-to-day life would refer to sort of ecclesiastical texts and hymns and so on and prayers and so that's that kind of is the only constant thing throughout all these periods of foreign rule and then other funny things happen with the ottomans like the ottomans were the best tax collectors in history so in collecting tax, you're going to have to have a degree of interaction. So more so than in previous periods where only the kind of upper classes would be in touch with the court. Okay, so the the Ottomans would go from village to village and collect taxes and they would interact. So we've got a largest part of the population being in contact with uh, Turkish speakers. And then there is the institution that is called the Dragomanos, which was, again, sort of a higher official in the Ottoman uh, administration, who would be a bilingual speaker, essentially, and work as a translator. 
And of course, yeah, there was influence all along, but it was kind of bi-directional. So we borrowed an awful lot from Turkish, but so did the people who settled from Turkey. So the what eventually became the Turkish, this Turkish Cypriot minority would be bilingual, and they still are. So that's kind of languages went both ways. Yeah, I feel like um, an example of that uh, would be the word "banayir." Um, If, and I'm, I'm definitely not pronouncing it correctly in Turkish, but we know that that's a Greek that that is a word that exists in the Turkish Cypriot dialect, and we know that's from the Greek "banayirin," um, mm-hmm. which I think anyone listening knows it's a festival of sorts. But you know, where are there more typical words that we find from Turkish in the Cypriot dialect that relates to uh, a typical cross-cultural contact? So, for example, will we hear words associated with uh, the market? Um, is that where we'd get the bulk of of um, t- uh, Turkish uh, influence, or at least at first? Is is that something that we can say confidently? Mm, uh, yeah, a few areas of day-to-day life, really. So, is the market is. A lot, a lot about food and cooking. So ways of preparing food and food items themselves. Uh, I, I don't know. Just pick anything that you think it belongs to Cypriot cuisine. Chances are, it's probably Turkish, or it's a Turkish word, or it's also found in Turkey. So yeah, perfect word, bakal, bakali in Greek. Mm-hmm. So I don't know, tavas just came to mind. I don't know why. That's that's yeah. a Turkish thing. Uh, yeah. You kind of borrow the the object and the what comes with it. So we can assume here that the locals absorbed a lot from the newcomers and subsequent generations the same. And so it's a matter of culture borrowing rather than linguistic. Linguistic is a sort of happy coincidence. So you borrow this dish mm-hmm. that you like so much, uh, and what do you call it? You call it that, and generations later people use that not quite sure whether what is it is done in that village but mm-hmm, it kind of the history becomes more obscure as time goes by in the late 19th century obviously we have the british who arrive and and with them comes the english language and we can see uh nativization happening there with a number of words i mean it, you can just speak the cypriot dialect you're gonna hear a number of english words there for example uh Naparcaro, right? Like I'm going to park the car, and then we have that suffix "aro," which is um, kind of the same adaptation, I suppose, that we did with the Italian. We did we we do with the with the English, and and I'm sure we can speak. You, you could speak to the impact of English, but there was a word that there's something that came to mind. We might might not be in the position to answer this question yet, but in the past two decades, let's say. Um, we've seen a significant impact of, of um, Russian and, I suppose, Eastern European uh, emigration to Cyprus. Are we seeing any linguistic impact with those um, linguistic groups? That's a really good question. I think it's hard to answer a question about something that might still be happening. Right. But for all I know, uh, I Doubt it. I don't know. I don't think Greek would ever pick from Russian because there are many Russians, and it's interesting. And I don't know why. It's just a different level of. I don't know. It's it's migration of a different type. So you don't 
you migrate and you immediately sort of assimilate with the local population. So what I've noticed in Cyprus every time I go is how many kids attend Greek schools right from the first grade and they are fully, perfectly Greek speaking. So there isn't that, I don't know, so immediately the children have been brought brought up in a Greek environment. And the other thing I'm not quite sure is, is there really a lot of interaction between Greeks and Russians? There are. And I wonder yeah. to, to what extent that's done in English. So maybe that's what's, I don't know, it's just my guess, really. Russians move to Cyprus not necessarily speaking Greek. Some do, uh, but the majority don't. And yeah, I know that Russian at some point became, I wouldn't say popular, but it became an option in some schools for Cypriots to learn Russian, but I'm not sure it's that popular. So I think what happens is it's just like the people who have sort of the early migrants who don't have each other's language would use English and and the subsequent generations would be brought up in Greek. So, and that's why... Russian is interesting because I remember a few years ago, it might have been more than 10 years ago, actually, and you started noticing a lot of Russian in the environment. So it really penetrated the linguistic landscape. So you'd have you'd have shops like with Russian notices on them and stuff like that. Right. And, I, and I found that quite extraordinary. I thought, yeah, why not? But you just don't hear it around unless... And the few Russians I know are really perfect Greek speakers. And... Uh, but they kind of, they lived there for many, many years. So it's, yeah, I don't know. So we'll see. Is the answer. Oh, well, and I think that that's, I think that's um, uh, ultimately it's, it's really too early to say. And, it, and you have to question the, the type of migration that's happening. Um, it's just something that, that did occur to me because um, inevitably, anytime we have a, a large movement of people, there, we do see some sort of influence even uh, at some point. And again, it's, a, it's difficult. And this is, I mean, I'm, I'm definitely not an expert, but uh, we know that Arabic was um, a language that was spoken amongst a number of minorities in Cyprus. And mm-hmm. we see the, the impact of some Arabic in, in Greek, or at least in our dialect. I mean, let's take the word for watermelon, for example, batiha. I mean, that's a it's an Arabic word, and it must have come from somewhere. And um, I obviously, I would think it came from these linguistic groups, Maronites, um, for example, who were who settled in in Cyprus. And you know, I don't have the answer to that. And <laughs> you know, I am just thinking out loud. It's it's well, something I'm very curious yeah. about. It's a good question. I'm glad you brought it up because. Uh, what I suspect, another linguist suspect, is that the impact of Arabic is larger than we think. Mm-hmm. Because I don't know, it's I, I came across that because well, I I did my research and I was I don't know plodding along happily with French and Italian, but when it came to Arabic, I just froze because I can't speak Arabic and I have no authority to speak about the influence of Arabic. And, and I think that's a problem. And most interestingly, I was speaking only a couple of weeks ago with a colleague who is based in Israel, but his interest is Arabic. And he was he's doing some research about the impact of Arabic in Malta. And Arabic in Malta is huge. So Maltese itself is kind of is based on Arabic and other languages. But uh, and then... He came to me asking me about Cyprus, and uh, 
And it's so obvious. I mean, we've got we've got the Maronite community, which speak a form of a dialect of Arabic. But we've got lots of historical sources from medieval times saying that Arabic is one of the languages. We've got somebody who visited Cyprus early in the Frankish period. And uh, he writes that people in Cyprus speak Greek and understand French and Arabic very well. So it's Mm -hmm. quite astonishing if people understand French and Arabic very well. Why is it that we haven't got so evidently influenced from Arabic? And I really can't answer that question because sadly not many academics so far have been fluent in both languages to kind of assess the situation with confidence. But if I were to guess something, uh, is that a lot of vocabulary that we think comes from Turkish might have been borrowed in an earlier period directly from Arabic because a lot of Turkish is what we were saying earlier about etymologies. Okay, so we find a word in Cypriot, and then we identify its source in Turkish. Okay, and we assume it was borrowed from the Ottomans because they were there for centuries, which is fine, except actually those words may not be Turkish. The story doesn't stop there. It goes further back to Arabic, so we cannot know for sure whether the Cypriot dialect didn't borrow directly from Arabic at an earlier period instead of Turkish during the Ottoman period. So that's that's the nightmare of etymologists. And uh, yeah, so the Arabic was quite common and there were Syrians living on the island apparently and lots, lots of communities. And that's all in the early part of the Frankish period where you, we see a truly kind of multicultural, cosmopolitan place. It declined gradually, but at the time, yeah, so the the impact of Arabic should be more than we can say so far. The the source that you were um, mentioning that we're we're in the medieval period where they said Greek is spoken here, but French is understood as is Arabic. I'm very confident that's uh, Jacobos da, da Verona, uh, yeah, he was he was a sort of monk who visited in. That's right. I actually um. Uh, Is it early thirteenth century or something like that? I can't remember very well, but yeah. Um, so. Yeah, I think it was the fourteenth century, and okay. it's just very coincidental. I just happened to have uh, read that recently, and that's why I'm I can confidently say that's who it was who said it. It's it's so fascinating because when we think of Cyprus. We think of two communities generally. We think of, of, of the Greek and and the Turkish communities, but we forget, or uh, rather, it's just not commonly known, just how multicultural Cyprus was. In, in particular, during the the medieval period, it was a very very multicultural place with a lot of cultural exchange, uh, linguistically and otherwise, and when you look at a dialect as rich as the Cypriot dialect. And I'm certain this is the case in, in Turkish Cypriot as well. It's just, it shows you how much contact and exchange and harmony existed in Cyprus during these periods. Um, I know it's it's futile to try to always identify word etymologies, um, but it's fascinating. It is incredibly fascinating, which I'm sure you can, you can attest to. That's, that's absolutely right. Yeah. And, uh, that's what we're saying, and it's something about islands that 
I don't know, makes the whole thing extra interesting in a way because when you're looking at a dialect, so a dialect would thrive if it's fairly removed from the mainstream language, okay? Cyprus is a long way from Athens. So that's why while in Greece sort of dialects kind of started coming together again, so that's what we were saying in the beginning about languages kind of diverging and converging. And so Cyprus, Cypriot sort of thrives because it's fairly away from the center, okay? And that was true throughout the medieval period and the Ottoman period and so on. So you've got kind of a dialect on its own, but at the same time, it's an island, and an island is always kind of visited by all these people who stop and go. So perhaps what had even more of an impact on Cyprus wasn't so much, obviously, yeah, political and military conquest, but also also trade, okay? And uh, what's interesting about the, the medieval period is Another thing I, I don't know I don't know much about but I find absolutely fascinating is the sort of the use of lingua lingua franca the original lingua franca where the term comes from so it's it, yeah it's a wonderful mixture of I don't know Italian and Arabic and the other languages of, of the Mediterranean and we think we're not sure that islands if you were ever to find more substantial evidence you have to look at islands because on the one half they've got on the one hand, they've got their own dialect and it's sort of free to evolve. And on the other hand, there are places of more extended contact. So that's why I think, I don't know, there is, there's a lot to be done about Cyprus and Malta and the other Mediterranean islands about that period. So it's kind of, I don't know, they call them the Dark Ages because, uh, and following that, obviously, uh, so the medieval period and even what would have been the Renaissance in Western Europe. You know, you mentioned diverging and converging, and um, I'm reminded of um, a, 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 a paper that I read um, from Davy and Banayotu, uh, which they, they talk about the, the, the Cypriot Greek dialect, and they actually differentiate um, within Cyprus the differences between town speech and village speech, horkatiga, uh, so to speak. And it's, I find it, now that you mentioned um, the, the diverging um, and then converging, you, there's quite a difference even within Cyprus when dealing with how you would articulate yourself in the town, so to speak, versus how you were, would in the village. And um, they give an example of the village, a sentence, they say, um, and you compare that to the standard modern Greek, which is and within that there's gradations um, where you have in the town and then Cypriot standard modern, which is then and even within these different areas, you have such a diverse way of expressing yourself, which reminds me of convergence because there's this impact of Athens um, all over mm -hmm. again and, uh, and an attempt to kind of reconcile these different um, 
sounds and different vocabulary. There's a little bit of code switching happening as well, where you uh, might might speak differently depending on where you are and to whom you're speaking to. I don't know if you've ever encountered this this uh, research or, or talked to it in your book. I don't recall exactly, but I don't know if that does that make sense. What I just said. It does. So it's, it's two things going on simultaneously. So. I'd say Cypriot Greek is, is a continuum of dialects. It's what you call gradation. So you've got the one extreme, so what some people consider Horkadiga, which is like, I don't know, the, the Cypriot dialect of more remote areas, more kind of close communities, who the closer than the smaller the community, the more conservative the language always. And sorry to interrupt, I would also add to that uh, the Cypriot dialect that's spoken in the diaspora as well, because the Cypriot that we grew up speaking abroad uh, was uh, is a time capsule of itself as well. That's um, right. There are words that we might use. I mean, I've heard my cousin use the word chakmaji for 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 a lighter, you know, <laughs> and I I I I I remember speaking to cousins in Cyprus who were, who were shocked at that word. They're like, "What is that?" We're like, "Well, anaptira, you know, the chakmaji." No, you don't know that. So, um, I I just a little footnote to, to what you it's were saying. This is a good example. So, so you've got all this. It's a continuum of varieties that belong to what we call very broadly Cypriot Greek and. And yeah, you find all these differences and you find them across the generations. You find them geographically. So people around the area of Paphos don't sound the same as people around the area of, I don't know, the Famagusta, say. That's, there are different variations of Cypriot Greek. So you find generational, so you find geographical, and you find sort of socioeconomic so a rural community would have a more maintain a more conservative type of Cypriot Greek than the more urban types who kind of work and travel more and so on. Uh, and then you've got always di- diasporas are more conservative. So you find that the best way to study earlier forms of any dialect is not just with Greek, it's with it happens all over the place. So that's that's a brilliant example of to kind of capture something that existed maybe at least one generation before. So so basically, the more remote the community, the more conservative it would be linguistically. So small villages, diaspora communities, and so on would speak a more kind of conservative type of Cypriot Greek. Mm-hmm. And then, so that's that's been the case for, I would say, Cypriot Greek once it's, it's sort of stabilized and it's identified as such and then convergence with mainland greek i'd say it's 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 part of that phenomenon as well so while some communities are more conservative linguistically some others are not okay some others are in much closer regular contact with people that came from mainland greece okay and there's huge numbers of them the last 10 years especially, or since the financial crisis in Greece, that kind of moved to Cyprus and they make it home. And I've met people who sort of, interestingly, sort of standard Greek speakers who try and pick Cypriot and then Cypriots who ditch the dialect in favor of a more sort of standardized version of Greek. And it's 
it's kind of so it's 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 in constant change the whole thing so you can't yeah it, it's kind of it's hard to put the name the dots on the line but it's definitely a line from the kind of joining the two extremes yeah Stavrula, this was um, this was uh, great and very very fun to talk about. I really I, I really truly enjoyed having this conversation because my wife she's Italian and I can't really <laughs> have these conversations around dialect as much. Although I will I will say this I had um, I did have a couple of neighbors over recently and we um, I wanted to do a make a souvla for them and um, I mentioned that uh, I needed to pull out the fugu. And she had no idea what I was talking about, but she says, she said to me, it sounded like you said, what is that? It sounds like Foco. Exactly. And I'm like, ah, that's right. It is. It's related. I'm sure, you know, fire, a, a brazier. I'm not sure exactly where it, it came from, but you know, we have some of these little exchanges here and there, but to actually speak with you and speak with someone who's uh, really done the research, I really like exploring this dialect i think it's such a fascinating dialect such a rich dialect well I, i'm hoping that if, if we've got young listeners out there that they get into it because i've done my phd well 15 years ago and i haven't seen much since and even even then it was kind, kind of original that's why i was drawn to it and since then it's a lot about i don't know how cypriot is used in different domains of news and uh, how it's used on digital media and so on. So it's all about contemporary Greek. But if anybody is interested in the language spoken on Cyprus in the past, broadly speaking, please go ahead and do it because there's a lot of work to be done there. So that's that's definitely, my and my especially little... in Arabic, right? Uh, exactly. Yeah, I, I, we need a perfectly bilingual Greek and Arabic person to help out. That's the other thing. And, uh, but yeah, there's interest there, and it's, it's, it's stuff we don't know. And probably, I want to think, hopefully, rather over optimistically, that there are sources that we underestimated or not studied enough that would reveal. So this this kind of small information we picked earlier: somebody visiting Cyprus in. 1535 and commenting on the languages there so that wouldn't mean anything it was just like a travel log but actually we get information that we wouldn't so i think i think there's a lot of material hidden away and there's certainly languages spoken on cyprus that we haven't got the full picture thank you so much again stavrula um i hope you have a great evening and uh i hope you enjoy the rest of the week and i will definitely be in touch to let you know when the episode is up fantastic thank you all right have a great night thank you again stavrula you too thank you bye bye, -bye. I'd like to take a moment to thank my Patreon members whose financial support have allowed episodes like these ones be produced. And if you've enjoyed this particular recording, please consider becoming a Patreon member. For as little as $1 a month, your financial support helps keep the podcast ad-free, offsets the costs of hosting. And if you become a third-tier member, you can have early access to upcoming episodes. You can find the History of Cyprus podcast on Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash the History of Cyprus podcast.